0: Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here. Part three today of the John Service History Podcast. My plan was to sort of finish off the topic today with the Dixie mission and then for the rest of the podcast just gloss over the next 30 years of his life after Service left Yenan on April 4th, 1945 and headed back to the USA for what turned out to be many years of being tied to the whipping post. When I decided to cover the life of John Service, I wasn't even sure if I could fill a 30-minute episode, and now here we are in this longer-than-usual episode, 117, and we're only going to get as far as the end of 1944. I won't even finish the Dixie mission today. We've been looking at the life of John's service as a kind of window into the complicated world of U.S.-China relations in the late 1930s and 40s. This is the Mingguo or Nationalist, period in China. There's no People's Republic yet. Chiang Kai-shek is the only ruler in China that most American people have ever known about. As we begin today, he hasn't earned the moniker Cash My Check yet. That's for the next episode. Chiang had been in power pretty much since Sun Yat-sen left this world prematurely in 1925, almost two decades I'm using author Lynn Joyner's book, Honorable Survivor, Mao's China, McCarthy's America, and the Persecution of John S. Service. This came out a few years ago and was put out there by the Naval Institute Press. I'm also drawing from one of my main stalwarts, Jonathan D. Spence, and his work, To Change China, Western Advisors in China. And I was finally able to pull Barbara Tuckman off the shelf and get a few zingers from Stillwell and the American Experience in China, 1911-1945. Besides these veritable founts of information contained in my library, if you spend a little time on your favorite search engine, you'll find there is an abundance, a feast, a plentitude of info out there. Documents galore. Pretty much anything John Service wrote that has been declassified, you name it, it's all out there. Everybody from FDR, Truman, Jiang, John Service, John Patton Davies, Stillwell. I mean, everyone we'll mention in this series has left behind their own version of events told in memoirs, magazine articles, letters, personal papers, recorded phone conversations, secret communications. Everybody's take on things from 1937 to 1945 is well documented for today's 21st Century Curious, as we begin part three of this series here at the Royal China History Podcast, we'll relive all the main milestones of this historic melodrama. But if I did anything whatsoever to pique your interest, to dig deeper and investigate the nitty-gritty of these times, you could start with the three sources I just gave you. No need to thank me. A lot of people in America back in the early 40s were attached to the Generalissimo, Some especially so. All the soft power resources available at the time fanned the flames of public opinion in favor of the nationalists, especially after the Japanese launched their full-scale invasion in 1937. Jiang had always gotten excellent press in the U.S. and unyielding support from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. No one had been saying anything negative about Chiang Kai-shek the nationalist government, or about their brutal struggle against the invading Japanese. Until now. 1944. Now it was beginning. After so many years of successfully holding back the tide, Jiang was no longer able to bully or sweet-talk his counterparts in D.C. Suddenly he was gently being pushed aside, and then this brief, Love fest between the communists in Yan'an and the Americans of the Dixie Mission will begin. So, let's back up and review the Wallace mission that we closed with the last episode. John Service's role in this mission continued to be in his capacity as a political officer attached to the staff of General Stilwell. Service had been serving in the embassy in Chongqing since 1941, or pretty much since even before Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Since 1943, though... Service had been loaned out to Stilwell to serve as his political advisor, so he was under the umbrella of the War Department rather than state. He is not a big guy in the service. Overall, in the State Department pecking order, his ranking was rather low to Midland, but this theme keeps repeating itself time and again. He's Mr. Nobody Special, but there he is, working face-to-face with generals, diplomats, and All the main cast of characters who all got top billing in this slice of history. He rubbed elbows and dined regularly with the likes of Mao, Zhou, Zhu De, Ye Jianying, Lin Piao, Jiang Kai-shek, Song Mei-ling, Stillwell, Wedemeyer, Wallace, Hurley, everyone. And then later on, when he's fighting for his life, he'll be facing off against one of the biggest bullies and oafs in American history, Senator Joe McCarthy. That's a lot of celebrities in one lifetime. In his role as an advisor to Stilwell, Service, in cooperation with others, produced a kind of uh, briefing paper for Wallace to read before he met with Jiang. It was meant for him to, you know, get a general idea of the situation from informed people who were on his same team and, you know, on the ground there. The entirety of John service's contempt for the nationalists in general, and for Jiang in particular, oozed forth from this document that was passed all over town. Everyone saw it, and a lot of eyebrows were raised, I assure you. The briefing was a scathing indictment of Jiang, the nationalists, and America's blind support for this regime without any consideration of other options. Although a lot of people had already begun saying this, the censors in Chongqing had Always been rather successful at filtering out most of the negative stuff. But this one got out because it had too much shine on it. It had been written with the help of two friends of Jack's service. One was his roommate, Saul Adler, who worked at Treasury and was, unbeknownst to service, also a Soviet spy. The other was an interesting chap who lived upstairs named Ji Chao Ding. He was one of the early and most effective communist propagandists. Ji had insinuated himself inside the American scene in Chongqing. Ji Chao Ding passed on a lot of tasty morsels to his peoples up in Yan'an. And his role during these Chongqing years, operating as a spy right under the noses of these guys, is a great untold story. One of the several upshots of the Wallace mission was that Jiang used the occasion to bend the VP's ear and just dump all over Stilwell in the strongest possible terms. He beseeched Wallace to do something to get rid of this troublesome general and replace him with someone else. It would take Jiang a while to accomplish this objective, but he was persistent, so he began his campaign to get rid of Stilwell with this Wallace visit. Furthermore, in another move to dupe the Americans, who even at Wallace's level couldn't have been more dupable, Jiang requested that some sort of presidential advisor be sent out who could work with Jiang to smooth out all these recent political and diplomatic matters. Word was getting out now into the American public. It more or less began with Ted White's Time article about the Henan famine. The more stuff that tried to get out, the greater the efforts were of Jiang's people to suppress everything, even mildly critical, of the regime. And the Song's knew how to spread money and charm around Chongqing and Washington. And they had a well-oiled lobbying machine working for them in the U.S. They were very effective at making sure that anything negative that got past their censors wouldn't see the light of day in the popular American press. I'm sure plenty of Americans on the receiving end were happy to take all this nationalist money to paint that portrait of them just right. This briefing by service, co-written by Saul Adler and Chi Chowding, was sort of the firing on Fort Sumter, I guess you could say. This was the opening salvo and the bitter feud that erupted between those who wanted to talk to the communists and those who felt the chai-koms were a wolf in sheep's clothing and we shouldn't stray from our long-standing position behind Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. This really was the first time someone had actually come out with a megaphone and said, Dump your KMT and CKS shares. Perhaps influenced by Jack's service, Henry Wallace told FDR in his report that conditions in China were, quote, extremely discouraging. Although he passed on Jiang's request that Stillwell be replaced, Wallace also wrote that Jiang was a short-term investment who had neither the intelligence nor the political strength to run post-war China. Wallace also said, quote, the leader of post-war China will be brought forward by evolution or revolution, and it now seems more likely the latter. He also included in his report that the CCP and KMT were at bitter odds with each other, and he saw, quote, little chance of a satisfactory long-term settlement. John Service and all like-minded China hands of the time did their best to Get these visiting officials to snap out of their hypnotized state. Jiang's supporters, and there were still quite a few, had always used their resources well to stoke the fires of the wartime nationalist China propaganda machine. They had been amazing at drowning out the voices of the Jack Services and John Patton Davies and others. Finally, these China hands must have thought, someone listened to us and opened their eyes and saw it for themselves. And no less a person than the vice president of the United States. Or was he? Yeah, good old Washington politics and Jiang's supporters made sure Wallace's anti jiang report never made it to that famous desk made from the timbers of the HMS Resolute that FDR sat behind inside the Oval Office. Never got that far. So Jiang's secret was kept from Roosevelt just a little bit longer. As soon as Wallace got back, he was out, and into his shoes, running as the new Veep for FDR's fourth term, was going to be Harry S. Truman. So Wallace was out, and so was his somewhat critical and, I guess you could say, scathing report on his visit with Chiang Kai shek. In a nice little bit of research, author Lynn Joyner mentions that this Wallace report got buried and didn't see the light of day until the McCarthy era began, and all of Wallace's most critical remarks in the report were censored. Even this late in the game, 1944, still not considered acceptable to say anything that went counter to U.S.-China policy. And in 1944, U.S.-China policy was very much still lined up behind the nationalist government. So, before... Henry Wallace walks off into oblivion. He gets Jiang to give the okay to sending this American observer group to go check out the Chai up in Yan'an. And this group, of course, became known as the USAOG, the U.S. Army Observation Group. Finally, Chairman Mao must have felt, as he sat in his cave in Yan'an, official recognition of his existence from the Americans. Everything up until this moment had all been under the table and unofficial. Now this USAOG had the chop of the United States Army stamped on it. In 1944, nobody knew this yet, but Mao was dying for U.S. support and recognition. He wanted this like he wanted nothing else, that is, outside of saving China and building up the nation again. But he saw the U.S. as the best possible ally in 1944. He knew with the U.S. at his side and all that amazing technology and know-how, China could bounce back in no time at all. And best of all, old Joe Stalin to the north would have to show some respect and back off of Mao's turf. So when Mao got word that this observer group was coming, he was mighty happy. But Mao at the same time, and and Enlai knew this too, no matter what, the U.S. and Jiang were joined at the hip. And no amount of hoping or promising or anything was going to make the Americans drop Jiang in favor of the communists. Mao knew what kind of a dirty word communism was to America. So he hoped, but he was a realist and didn't count on anything. He knew the way this thing between him and Jiang was going to end up. The USA is going to drop a rock on its foot right about now. You know, when Jiang was alone with Wallace and he had his two closest advisors with him, namely his wife and his brother-in-law, he told Wallace, hey, man, you got to get rid of Stilwell. So, you know, Wallace told Jiang, hey, I'm on it. Only no one listens to Wallace after he gets back. Instead, the Department of War, remember the War Department was what they call the Defense Department, Truman would change the name in 1947 with the National Security Act. But the War Department, as it was called back then, led by Henry Stimson, decided in their infinite wisdom not to get rid of Vinegar Joe, as the GMO insisted, but instead to put him in charge of the whole army in China. In other words, Chiang Kai-shek would be working for Stilwell. How did such a thing happen? Fed up with all the bad news he was hearing, FDR sent a message to Jiang and said plainly, quote, I recommend that you charge Stilwell with full responsibility and authority to stem the tide of the enemy advances. I feel that the case of China is so desperate that if radical and promptly applied remedies are not immediately affected, our common cause will suffer a disastrous setback. Now, of course, FDR doesn't just send an email to Jiang. Because of the communication technologies of the day, the message was sent by cable to the U.S. Embassy. Someone had to go deliver it. The highest-ranking person at the time was General Benjamin Ferris. He was tasked to bring the bad news to Jiang, and he asked Service to come with to do the translation directly to the Generalissimo rather than through one of his handlers who might not give a reliable translation. So here's some low-level guy like Service who Jiang hates, giving the Supreme Leader what amounted to a dressing down in front of his assembled staff, no less. Service said later on this wasn't a good idea, putting Stilwell in charge of everything. Service was back a week later in his same capacity as a translator with a second cable from Roosevelt where the president turned up the heat and really leaned on Jiang to transfer power to Stilwell. He also assured Jiang that he was searching far and wide for a suitable personal envoy that could act as that Perfect mediator between Jiang and this general who got under his skin so badly. FDR was really leaning on Jiang, but there's only two things on Chiang Kai-shek's mind. One is the matter of U.S. attitudes towards the CCP, and the other was control of the lend-lease supply chain. Jiang and his buddies were making a fortune siphoning off lend-lease supplies. It was also critical to get as much as possible and keep that powder dry for use against the PLA on another day that everyone by now, Ichigo offensive or not, knew was coming soon. By this time, Japan was paying the price of biting off more than it could chew. Their empire, so easily seized and built up, was starting to fray around the edges. But the Ichigo offensive was proving quite effective, They were determined to consolidate their hold in China by building a single line of communication from the north to the south, from Tianjin to Guangzhou, and then wiping out the American air bases was critical before they could finally hammer the nationalists to capitulate. It was a dark hour for Japan in late 1944, but they weren't giving up in China just yet. A few weeks later, as promised, FDR picks the perfect mediator— a guy with charm and all the schmoozing skills necessary to keep the Hatfields and McCoys in the same bed. Too bad for everyone it was a case of the old Chinese adage, Tong Chuang meng Same bed, different dreams. Based on the shining recommendations of George Marshall and Secretary Stimson, FDR picked Patrick Hurley as his special personal envoy. Hurley, we met from the last episode, he had served as Hoover's Secretary of War. He was an Oklahoma Republican who, good old Roosevelt, the ultimate political animal, thought made a wise political choice to curry favor with by giving him this very prestigious job. With the election year coming up soon, FDR had this in mind when he picked this guy. Too bad it was an election year. So the Army Observer Group it blasts off into history on July 22nd, 1944. The initial group, who led the charge and got to hang out with all the CCP luminaries, included eight Army guys, five of whom had OSS ties, plus one diplomat, John Service. The top guy was Colonel David Barrett, another China expert who, like Stilwell, had served so many years in China. He was fluent in the language. The OSS was dying to know what value they could extract from the communists in terms of intel on the enemy. One of the reasons they were so hot to establish direct connections with the communists was to extricate themselves from Dai Li's spy network, which included control of Sako. When these nine Americans arrived in Yenan, the plane had a bit of an accident due to the makeshift runway and the aircraft was damaged on landing. Not the best beginning. Zhou Enlai, just as he would with Nixon 28 years later, was waiting at the end of the plane steps for the first members of what became known as the Dixie Mission. The CCP leaders really felt bad about the damaged army plane, and at once the locals were organized to go fix that runway and, you know, smooth it out a little. Even Mao himself put in the obligatory few hours of symbolic laodong to show his cheng yi The Americans, too, picked up a shovel and joined in as well. Ah, the next few weeks, unfortunately, were the high point of the mission. The second wave of Americans came, nine more, most with OSS ties, and some, like service, had a heavy China background. One of the Communist Party's main mouthpieces, the Liberation Daily, proclaimed in an editorial on July 22nd that the arrival of the Dixie mission was, quote, the most exciting event ever since the war against Japan started. So right away, Barrett and Service hold meetings with Zhou Enlai, Zhu De, Lin Piao, and Ye Jianying as well. These guys spoke Mandarin, so all the Tong and jiao liu with all these leaders was nice and effective. They set forth the purpose of the mission. They were there for mainly five things. One, to study the CCP's effectiveness as a fighting force. Two, to gain intel on potential targets to strike, as well as the location of landing strips, three, determine the location of enemy forces, four, to set up weather reporting stations, and five, to develop joint plans for rescuing any downed U.S. airmen behind enemy lines in North China. And they emphasized over and over, they were just observers, so don't expect them to speak on behalf of Washington or cut any deals with them or make any promises of material support. At the welcome dinner held for the original nine members of the mission, Colonel Barrett sat on Mao's left and Jack service sat to the future great helmsman's right. And to the right of service was Judah. So he got to sit in between Mao and Ju. Not bad. And also, remember Chun Yi? One of China's greats, military hero, future Shanghai mayor, foreign minister. Mao personally officiated at his funeral when he passed in 1972. When he met Jack Service in Yan'an, he learned that Service's dad, Bob Service, was one of his teachers when he attended the Chengdu YMCA. A lot of people have passed judgment on John S. Service over the course of his life and even into today. Some insist he was nothing more than a stooge and a Traitorous cheerleader for the communists. They say he was one of the most effective pipelines of communist party propaganda into the United States. Anyways, the reports coming out of Yan'an from Jack Service in 1944 just couldn't have been more positive and glowing. Even John Carter Vinson suggested to Service that this all looked too good to be true, and surely he was going a little too far in his dispatches from Yan'an. But. There was just too much evidence being found that a lot of what the communists claimed, you know, as far as the amount of area they controlled, the popular support they claimed to enjoy, and their coming to the rescue of U.S. pilots shot down in North China. The more the Dixie Mission members did their due diligence, the more they found this wasn't just propaganda. So service stayed in Yenan for about three months, and he just churned out one report after another. He... Went to all the famous Saturday night dances where Mao would establish his reputation as a man who had an eye for the women. Jiang Qing was already there and service hung out with her too. He was part of that whole scene when everyone was so glad to be with each other and the opportunities seemed endless. He dined with Jiang Qing and Mao on August 22nd. He had spent eight hours with Mao Zedong in his cave and service took copious notes of the message that Mao wanted to get out. Mao was ever the opportunist in his efforts to deceive the Americans in order to gain their trust and obtain an advantage over his mortal enemies based in Chongqing. The reports that service was compiling were quite complimentary of the communists. His detractors many years later would say, you know, service was Merely a dupe for the communists and was cleverly used by them to get their deceitful message out. So the stage is set for Hurley's arrival. He arrives in early September via Moscow in New Delhi. He had met with Molotov when he was in Russia, and that old fox told Hurley, Hey, no way we'd support Mao. You know, he ain't one of us, and we don't want nothing to do with him and his so called communists. So, you know, Hurley took this to mean the uh, Soviet Union was on the side of Chiang Kai-shek. That was the first of many mistakes to follow. You know, when JX Service and the Dixie Mission landed in Yan'an on July 22nd, you'd hardly know there were any Russians there. By no means at this early stage were the CCP and the Soviets going steady yet. There were a you know small handful of Russians in Yan'an, but right away you could tell the Chinese up there were totally in control. There were no... Common turn, or you know, Russian agents—they are calling the shots. It had been a quarter century since Li Dachao first told his fellow intellectuals in Beijing to look at this guy Lenin and you know what he was doing. That was in June 1918. Via the common turn, there was some early influence on the Chinese communists, but then came the Shanghai Massacre in 1927, followed by all the aggression by the Soviets in Xinjiang and Manchuria. By no means were the Chinese communists buddy-buddy with Russia. In other words, in the summer of 1944, they were still sitting on the fence, and the USA had the inside track as far as Mao Zedong was concerned, and he was the main decider in Yan'an. Jack Service and others saw this, and they were desperately trying to get word out that these Coms could be had if we just play ball with them. The alternative is that they run into the arms of the Soviets. I have a copy of a declassified report Service wrote on August 29, 1944. It's entitled, Report Number 16, The Desirability of American Military Aid to the Chinese Communist Armies. The actual document, you know, yellowed with age, is available for you to see in PDF format. It's wild to see, you know, how far we've come and, you know, the way we do things now compared to 1944. It's just a typewritten report written in the old-fashioned style. This report was written to General Stilwell. It lays out Service's entire case as to why the communists should be supported and armed by the U.S. Army. He pulls no punches and calls the nationalist leaders weak, incompetent, uncooperative, politically blind, thoroughly selfish, and only concerned with preserving their tottering power. I mean, he really lays into them. He concludes by saying, quote, Consideration of all these political and military factors, I propose, warrants the extension of American military aid to the Chinese communist armies. It was signed, John S. Service, and approved for transmission by Colonel David D. Barrett. But Hurley had been assured by Molotov, don't worry about that happening. So Hurley thought he had an ace up his sleeve. But in fact, he did not. So, September 6, 1944, service is up in Yan'an with the Dixie Mission, and Patrick J. Hurley, personal envoy of the U.S. President, is sitting in Chongqing with Chiang Kai-shek and his magnificent wife, Song Mei Ling, she figured Hurley out in about a nanosecond, and she began at once to win him over to their side. What is there to say? She was something. You know, you know I read in Lynn Joyner's book, to, to show you what a nincompoop Hurley was as far as, you know, having any understanding of Chinese culture and traditions... <laughs> He referred to Madame Jiang as Madame Shek. Good job, FDR, picking the right guy to save the day between the U.S. and China. So I guess you all know where this whole story is going. Now, the demand had already been made for Jiang to hand over the reins of authority in the military to Stilwell. But he was stalling like crazy. And the talks between Hurley, Stilwell, and Jiang were simply getting nowhere. And the truth was... <laughs> Chiang Kai-shek wasn't going to hand over command of the Chinese army to Stilwell any more than Xi Jinping would hand over power of the CMC to Chuck Hagel. But Hurley was determined to crack this nut and went back and forth to try and cut a deal. On September 13th, 1944, Zhou Enlai formally invites General Stilwell and Patrick Hurley to come up to Yan'an and check the place out. Now Jiang starts to really lose it, because all this time, going back to the late 30s, he had done so much to hold on to his American backing and support, and now, at the highest level, they were beginning to cavort with his most bitter rivals, and he couldn't stop it. Nothing had gone his way from the start, and now he felt he was, he was just going to lose them. He saw how gullible and susceptible to Chinese wiles they were, and he just, he just felt desperate and beat. So on the one hand, Hurley and Stillwell are pushing real hard to get control of the Chinese war machine. And at the same time, Jiang's heels are dug in as far as they can go because he resents it that they're going to go cavort with his enemies. There is no progress on this issue. Stillwell and Jiang just couldn't get along. In fact, hated each other. September 19th, 1944, another low point in the annals of Chiang Kai-shek's personal history. He gets a cable from a frustrated and uninformed Roosevelt that says, quote, I have urged time and again in recent months that you take drastic action to resist the disaster which has been moving closer to China and to you. Now, when you have not yet placed General Stilwell in command of all forces in China, we are faced with the loss of a critical area in East China with possible catastrophic consequences. I am certain that the only thing you can now do in an attempt to prevent the Japanese from achieving his objectives in China is to reinforce your Salween armies in Burma and press their offensive, while at once placing General Stilwell in unrestricted command of all your forces. How would you feel if you were a dignified head of state and got an email like that? Well, what followed was a real barn burner of a heated meeting. Hurley, who in short order was already in Jiang's and the Song's back pocket, insisted this message from FDR was way too strong and needed to be toned down a little. But Stilwell insisted they follow orders. This had to go from FDR to Jiang direct. So they all meet and Stillwell hands the letter to one of Jiang's right-hand men who starts to read this in Chinese. And Stillwell knows he's going to rub the generalissimo's nose and you know what. So he was surely gloating at, you know, Jiang's loss of face. But Hurley intervened and, you know, grabbed the message out of the guy's hands and just, you know, passes it to Jiang so that, you know, he could read it privately instead of, you know, out loud in front of everyone. Well, Stillwell just couldn't resist. And at the peak of Jiang's humiliation, he makes some quip like, you know, is that official enough for you? And remember, you know, he knows how to speak Chinese. Barbara Tuckman put it well when she said the tone of FDR's letter to Jiang was, quote, rough, and in substance, it was an invasion of sovereignty that denied Roosevelt's own concept of China as a great power and accepted Stilwell's view of Jiang as incapable of managing his country's role in the war. It called him peanut by implication. And all admirers of Vinegar Joe and the lore associated with him surely recall these eight lines taken from his little poem to his wife that night, where he wrote, "'I've waited long for vengeance. At last I've had my chance. I've looked the peanut in the eye and kicked him in the pants.'" I know I've still to suffer and run a wary race, but oh, the blessed pleasure, I've wrecked the peanut's face. That was it? If Jiang hated Stillwell before, now it was a fight to the death. Now it was personal. No, it was already personal. But now it was serious. Jiang pulled out all the stops and demanded to Hurley that they get rid of Stillwell. No matter what, he could not cooperate with this guy. So the anti- Stillwell forces go full throttle, and before long, Harry Hopkins, Henry Wallace, Lachlan Curry, and of course, you know, Hurley, are all demanding that Stillwell be replaced. Stillwell had to go, or Jiang would go. And if Jiang goes, so goes China for the U.S. Meanwhile, up in Yan'an, it's already October, and word of the epic battle between the pro and anti-Stillwell forces makes its way up there. Stilwell had long been an advocate of using the chai comms as a supplementary military force and for guerrilla warfare. So now that it looked like he was on his way out, it really began to sour the Yan'an spirit. The folks in Chongqing had just about had it with John's service and all his reports about how fantastic the communists were. The Jiang faction played their strongest card well, and that was the control of Patrick Hurley's heart and his mind. October twenty second, 1944, Stilwell was shipped stateside. He'd only have two more years to live before stomach cancer would cut his life short at the age of 63. Hurley had been convinced that this guy John Service was a good-for-nothing troublemaker in the back pocket of the chai comms and needed to be kicked out of China for good. So his old Childhood friend from his boyhood Chengdu days, John Patton Davies, is sent up to Yan'an to brief service and give him orders to head back to the U.S. Stilwell's dismissal made Jack's service see red. He knew this had Jiang's fingerprints all over it, and in effect, for the sake of placating a foreign dictator, we dismissed not only one of our most able generals, but a four-star general at that. Well, Davies convinced Hurley to go check out the chai comms for himself. FDR wasn't quite ready to unfriend, you know, Chiang Kai-shek, but let's say his enthusiasm for his staunch ally had cooled considerably. FDR was now counting on Stalin to finish off Japan once Germany was defeated. He had given up hoping that the Nationalist Army was going to be able to do this. The CBI, or China-Burma-India Theater, was split up so that China became an independent theater of war. General Albert C. Wedemeyer was put in charge of Stilwell's replacement. So, on October 23, 1944, John Service headed back to the U.S. Before he left, however, both Service and Davies had sat With the big three in China, Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, and Chu Dun had a very long and frank conversation about, you know, possible cooperation in the war. George Hadom and Edgar Snow, they were also present in Yan'an when the Dixie Mission was there, you know, doing its thing. But before service returns to America, he flies to Chongqing and finally meets with Hurley, you know, who treats him like a pariah right out of the starting gate. Hurley's mind had already been made up for him by Jiang and the Songs. So service just walked into a buzzsaw. He came in to tell Hurley he had just met with Mao Zedong, Zhou Enlai, and Chu De, the three most powerful, important, and influential men up in Yan'an. You know, and Hurley just disses him and says, you know, who needs to know all that? Who cares what those guys think? You know, so this meeting went nowhere. Both Mao and Jiang were playing Hurley to be a fool, manipulating his mind through their proxies. Hurley was still telling FDR, you know, don't worry, eh, a few setbacks, but I'll have them eating out of the same rice bowl in no time at all. So Hurley purposely chooses to remain uninformed of the real situation, and he holds service in complete disdain. And with optimism that knew no bounds, Hurley remained convinced he could rely on his human skills to break this impasse. John Service returned to the U.S. with a New York Times reporter named Brooks Atkinson. Atkinson was carrying a story he wrote that was red hot and really put the knife into Chiang Kai-shek and the whole nationalist regime. He and Service left on the same flight out of Chongqing. They flew over the hump to India, then to the Middle East, and then to North Africa where they were stranded in Tunisia. Service was able to get on the next flight to New York ahead of Atkinson, so the reporter gave his story to Service, who hand-carried it to the offices of the New York Times as soon as he landed and found his way into Midtown. This little story that John Service hand-carried for Brooks Atkinson ran in the New York Times on Halloween, October thirty-first, 1944. Everything John Service had been saying and more was contained in this article. It further accused the War Department of firing Stillwell to placate Jiang and made a lot of hay about the corruption involved with all the Lend-Lease supplies. Atkinson's article said, quote, America is now committed, at least passively, to supporting a regime that has become increasingly unpopular and distrusted in China, that maintains three secret police services and concentration camps for political prisoners that stifles free speech and resists democratic forces well if at least atkinson didn't call them communists then that really would have been too much there began a kind of groundswell of outrage in the us and the china lobby in the us who were you know no slouches in these kinds of situations for the sake of damage control began to Spin this yarn that all of this was untrue and was merely communist propaganda that John Service and John Patton Davies had been spreading since the days they got to Chongqing. Now people began to question U.S. China policy, and John Service was a very popular and in demand person for the period of his stay in the U.S. Not long after his arrival, Service met with Lachlan Curry and John Carter Vincent, who encouraged him to get the word out and speak to people who might be interested to hear what he had to say. They tell Service that they're going to send some big and influential people his way, and he should give them the honest skinny on what was going on in China. Among others, Service met with the head of the China lobby, Henry Luce of Time Life. That meeting didn't go too well, and Luce basically shut Service down and wouldn't swallow anything about what Service was saying. Service's meeting with Harry Hopkins went about as well. Service tried to sell this close FDR friend and aide about the merits of the communists. But Hopkins would only tell Service, quote, Very interesting. I have no doubt that the picture you give is largely correct, but the only Chinese that most Americans have ever heard of is CKS. And those guys call themselves communists. Hopkins couldn't have been more dismissive of Mao as a person and the CCP as a movement. He did ask Service how Patrick Hurley was doing over there. Service called him, quote, a disaster and in the KMT's pocket and that he was working against Stilwell. This is what Service often ran up against when dealing with the U.S.-China policymakers. Roosevelt was ill and only had a few more months to live. This was hardly the political climate where any major changes were going to happen. He spoke uh, at a place called the Institute for Pacific Relations, the IPR. This is going to be important later on when the whip comes down. There at the IPR, Service met an ONI, Office of Naval Intelligence, officer named Andrew Roth. Roth is going to send a whole slew of China watchers John Service's way, and some of them Service is going to regret knowing later on. Meanwhile, back in China, the day FDR was reelected for a fourth term, November 7th, 1944, Hurley landed in Yan'an. He finally was making the long-awaited visit. He flew up there with the little-known but very important person in CCP history, Lin Zhu Han. The ambassador, Clarence Gauss, had already resigned, but no replacement had been picked yet. When Hurley landed in Yan'an... Colonel David Barrett remembered, There appeared at the top of the steps a tall, gray haired, soldierly, extremely handsome man wearing one of the most beautifully tailored uniforms I have ever seen, and with enough ribbons on his chest to represent every war except possibly Shay's rebellion. Barrett had been waiting for Hurley at the airstrip along with Joe Lai. The future premier asked Colonel Barrett, Who is that guy? And once he saw what an imposing figure Hurley was and what a grand entrance he was making, he immediately ran and got Mao and mustered up an honor guard to mark the occasion. Well, in no time at all, Hurley had the Chinese completely baffled with his indisputable ignorance about the situation. From his initial conversations and small talk, it became apparent Hurley knew nothing about the communists, their tortuous, Relationship with the nationalists, their short term and long term goals. Nothing. Nada. In what Hurley believes is a totally great deal, he allows himself to be talked into agreeing to these five points. One, the Chinese government, Kuomintang, and Communist Party should cooperate with each other and unite all their domestic military resources to defeat Japan. Two, the parties agree to transform the Guomindang government into a coalition government and announce the new Three Principles of the People. Three, the coalition government should support Sun Yat-sen's theory and build up a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Yeah, right. Four, the coalition government should recognize all military who are against the Japanese army. And five, the legal status of all the parties should be recognized. This is on November 9th, 1944. Hurley and Mao come to some, you know, general understanding. Now, Barrett knows this is a totally bogus agreement. and No matter what, it is not going to have Jung's cooperation because he was not going to consider any power-sharing agreement. The next day, November 10th, Hurley offers his, you know, counter proposals and it went back and forth, you know, like it always does. And Hurley made sure to load the document with all kinds of, you know, flourishes from the Constitution, Bill of Rights and FDR's greatest one-liners. To Mao, this was a pretty good deal, but he knew CKS was never going to go for this. No one wanted to tell Hurley he was nuts. So Hurley, in an uncontrollable wave of self-importance, tells Mao, hey, let's both sign this memorandum to put a little bit of the old gravitas into the document. Then, you know, everyone pops the champagne corks, and Hurley thinks he saved the day. He was telling the people back in D.C. that they just loved him up here. So he heads back to Chongqing, and he's convinced he's going to take these five points and get Chiang Kai-shek's nod of approval. As soon as his plane... Left Yan'an, Mao and Zhou must have looked at each other and smiled at their good luck. Hurley had signed his name to a document that was going to bring them into the mainstream. But of course, just as everybody except Hurley knew, Jiang rejected the five points. Hurley tried and tried, but got nowhere. Now he knew he might have acted prematurely with Mao regarding these five points. Jiang took out two of the five points. These were the the two that dealt with a coalition government and a national war council. Then he did a little bit of this and that and, you know, watered this down, wouldn't commit to that. And now Hurley had to go back to Mao and sell him a hamburger that didn't look like the one in the advertisement. And when Jiang gave Hurley his best offer, he must have thought, if Mao Zedong agrees to this, he ought to have his head examined. And as all this is happening, Hurley is assuring FDR that uh, he's almost ready to ink a deal. November 17th, 1944, Patrick J. Hurley is officially made the replacement to the departed ambassador, Clarence Gauss. He is now Ambassador Hurley and no longer just a presidential envoy. After Gauss had seen what Hurley did to Stilwell, he threw in the towel. He just couldn't take it anymore. So Jiang's latest counterproposal is brought to Joe and Enlai for a look-see, and of course, you know, Joe tells him to go fly a kite. Hurley, Wedemeyer, Barrett, they all leaned hard on Joe to cave, but there was no use. Joe and Colonel Barrett fly to Yenon to meet with Mao. This is where Mao gives it to him and says, I thought we had a deal with these five points. This was on December 8th. So, you know, Barrett then goes back to Chongqing empty handed and you know, everything's falling apart. Mao had actually said to Barrett that he should leak these five points to the press and show them the deal that he had been promised, and now the ambassador was going back on his word. Well, maybe he never intended to do this, but when Barrett told this to Hurley, from that point on, the Chai comms were on Patrick Hurley's He Ming Tan, and he refused to accommodate them any further and he jumps back into the arms of the Song's and Chiang Kai-shek. He was failing in his mission to bring the two opposing sides together to cooperate in the war against Japan. Not only were the two sides not coming together, they were now farther apart than ever. Jiang flat-out said no to everything, and Mao was in no hurry to negotiate because there were now OSS people swarming all over the place there, working hand-in-hand with the communists but Hurley didn't know this. Mao is still insisting that Hurley stick with the five-point proposal that they painstakingly hammered out in Yan'an when he visited, and Hurley is exasperated at Mao's intransigence, but then out of nowhere comes a lightning bolt, a perfect excuse for Hurley to explain the reasons for his failure to achieve results. One of General Wedemeyer's staff had sent, you know, Colonel Barrett up to Yan'an to work with Mao and Zhu De about future OSS-CCP cooperation. Dai Li's spies find out about this trip to Yan'an by Barrett and, you know, the topic of discussion. And they tell their boss, you know, who tells TV Song, who tells Jiang. And then it starts a whole avalanche of outrage by Hurley. When T V Song runs to the ambassador saying, What the hell's going on? you know, Hurley claims ignorance. He he starts by making inquiries and you know finds out it was someone on Wedemeyer's staff acting without the general's orders who allowed Barrett, you know, to go up there at such a sensitive time when all this you know deal making was going on. So now Hurley starts screaming for the first time that he was being undermined. Suddenly the entirety of U.S.-China policy becomes all about Patrick Hurley's big ego than about deciding on a course of action. Heads rolled after this. Wedemeyer's chief of staff was fired. John Patton Davies also got slammed for his involvement and was transferred out of China. And poor David Barrett was due for a promotion to brigadier general, and Hurley had that quashed. T.V. Song and his coterie made sure to whisper and Hurley's air, but how rotten these guys were all the time undermining the ambassador's great efforts, and they riled Hurley up real nicely thanks to this landmine. Another bit of blowback from this incident came in the form of a directive from Hurley saying that there could be nothing said or transmitted that was critical of Jiang or the Nationalist Party. Everyone had to strictly obey the present American policy that still had all its chips on the nationalists. Hurley would, you know, routinely share secret information with the Song's and Jiang's people, but he made sure others on his own staff were kept on a short leash. Resentment was really brewing. John Service, along with John Patton Davies and John Carter Vincent, were the lone voices saying if we didn't extend a hand to the communists, then later on they'll end up in the arms of the Soviets and that will tilt the whole balance of power in Asia. All those who felt likewise were lined up against Hurley. This was a very poisonous atmosphere down at the American embassy in Chongqing, late 1944. Well, I have seven more pages of notes that were meant for this episode, and as you can see, we are well into stoppage time. So now is actually a good time to stop because we're about to pick up in January of 1945 when our hero and the subject of today's episode is going to fly back to Chongqing from the States. Hurley is on the rampage, and not that the cooperation was ever any good, but now it's a foregone conclusion. Civil war looks inevitable. Not only between the CCP and the KMT, but between Hurley and a lot of others, too. I want to conclude by saying there are multiple sides to this story. Perhaps because I'm mainly using Lynn Joyner's book, you know, the viewpoint I'm taking is more sympathetic to Jack's service. However, there are also historians and others who paint a nicer portrait of Hurley, Jiang, and Madame Jiang, you know, Dai Li, and others. There's always at least, you know, two sides to every story. This period in the early to mid-1940s, when the future of China was still being sorted out, was one filled with Intrigue of the highest order of spies and webs of deception and of documents that were, you know, constantly intercepted, stolen, and leaked. So I'm pretty sure now that this series on the life of John S. Service, not only going to four episodes, but almost certainly to five. I hope you're enjoying not only about learning about the life of John Service, but also of these dramatic times in Chongqing and Yan'an. What a story. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off once again, and as usual, from the quintessential American town of Claremont, California, population something like 35,000, home of the Claremont Colleges and the world-famous Institute for Postmodern Development of China. Yes, all in our quaint little slice of heaven here. Join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.